Hello and welcome to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. We're talking to leaders across the cell and gene therapy industry and telling you more about Ori's mission to manufacture brighter futures. I'm Jason Foster, the CEO of Ori Biotech, and I'll be your host for today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Foster. Today with me is Isabel Riviere. Uh, she's the director of and Michael G. Harris Cell and Gene Therapy Engineering Lab at MSK, Memorial Sloan Kettering. Welcome, Isabel. Good morning, Jason. Very nice to be with you this morning. I will be uh, very pleased to answer any questions you may have. Uh, would love everyone, I think, in the world knows, unless they've been hiding under a rock, that uh, Sloan Kettering is one of the leading uh, cancer centers in the world. I uh, would love to learn a bit more about your background and what led you into the field that you're in, uh, and also uh, some of the work that you're leading at MSK, if that's okay. Yes. Uh, so I've been in the uh, field uh, for uh, over uh, almost three decades. I uh, started to be interested in uh, cell and gene therapy uh, during my um, early PhD in France. Um, I was uh, lucky enough to have a visionary uh, advisor who wanted to uh, treat uh, AIDS with uh, gene therapy and hematopoietic stem cells, um, expressing uh, some antiviral genes such as interferons. So it was a great opportunity for me to uh, get my first uh, dive into uh, gene therapy and hematopoietic cells. And so I started the, the work at the Institut Curie in Paris, and I ended uh, continuing the work at uh, MIT in Cambridge. Um, and subsequently, I went to NYU um, in New York, where I did a, a postdoc in immunology um, with Dan Littman, where I learned a lot of the biology that we uh is very useful today to um, try to manipulate and the T cells and, and other cells of the immune system and trying to uh, improve their fitness to uh, treat uh, cancer. And finally, I was recruited at uh, Sloan Kettering um, about uh, two decades ago, a little more. And there I uh, did set up the uh, GMP uh, facility to manufacture um, plasmids and cells. Um, I was basically given uh, in 1998 the keys of a small uh, GMP facility, or small by today's standards, I guess, uh, four clean rooms. Um, and I had one technician at the time. And over the years, uh, I built the uh, operations, the process, the quality assurance, quality control, uh, production teams, and uh, and now we're a group of uh, more than 40 people um, delivering uh, mostly cell products, genetically engineered cell products to, to patients. Mm -hmm. And do you, most of the work that you're doing, is it with sponsors, external companies, or mostly internal research, or a little bit of both? What, what does the mix look like? Early on, we were really working um, purely as academics with either NIH, NCI funding, mm -hmm. and uh, foundations. This was really uh, the groundwork uh, that we had to do because uh, there was absolutely no uh, company, industry, pharmaceutical company or biotech that were interested in uh, cell therapies uh, back in, in 2000. Mm -hmm. 
Luckily, that's changed. Yes, it has <laughs> changed. It took a very long time. Yes. Uh, we uh, we were told for many years that this was an impossible uh, approach, uh, that uh, it would not work, that uh, you could not retrofit uh, cells uh, to become uh, drugs. And so we had to stick to it for many, many years uh, until we had... Uh, a proof of concept in 2003 in an animal model of um, leukemia where we demonstrated that uh, the CAR T cells could be really um, very active in controlling and eradicating uh, systemic tumors. And um, this uh, was uh, a publication in uh, Nature Medicine by Branchens and, and Sadlan, which uh, really uh, opened the... Uh, the door for us and allowed us to uh, do the proof of concept in human five years later. Yeah, it must be incredibly gratifying to have 20 or 30 years of hard graft come to come good. And yeah, I think Bruce Levine was our very first podcast guest and gave us a little bit of the historical reference point as well. But you know, you've obviously been in the field. I, I joked with him and you guys were in it before it was cool. Oh, much before. <laughs> it wasn't cool at all at the time. Yes, yes. But it's definitely cool now and, and having incredible clinical benefit for patients, which is which is awesome. Um, and, you know, wanted to add as well that given your wealth of experience, Ori is incredibly lucky to have you as a, a member of our scientific advisory board and an advisor uh, to the company. And it's been a great getting to know you over the last year, although it feels like maybe longer because we've been in COVID times, but... Uh, you know, it's great to be able to work with one of the leaders and in, in the uh, in the pioneers in the space. So, just to let everyone know that that's happening uh, publicly for the first time, which is great. Can you tell us a little bit about? I think you're going to come on to it about some of the work you're doing currently at MSK. You know, what are the kind of some of the trends in cell and gene therapy that you think are most interesting uh, that you guys are working on, or that you're seeing other labs work on? I'd be I'd be keen to know from your perspective. Well, I. Sloan Kettering, we have a number of um, clinical trials which are homegrown, uh, which involve um, CAR T cells, and um, both in the uh, autologous uh, setting and and hopefully the homegrown projects in the allogenic uh, setting will also uh, be launched in in the very near future. Um, So we've been treating patients um, with both hematological tumors as well as solid tumors now more recently. Um, Over the years, we have um, probably uh, carried um, more than 15 clinical trials and treated over 500 patients. We had a a breakthrough in 2014 after we treated five patients um, with um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. These were adult patients and uh, in which we um, really um, witnessed the eradication of the tumors within days post-infusion to the point that we thought this was an artifact and that the technician had forgotten to put the antibodies in, <laughs> in the tube as we were looking for the tumor in, in, in the bone marrow that was that has disappeared mm. uh, within 11 to, to 22 days. Wow. So um, this was really um, uh, an incredible moment um, to see the, the power of, of those therapies uh, in, in patients. And um, uh, subsequently, we have carried a number of um, clinical trials, um, not only in patients with ALL, but also chronic lymphocytic leukemia, myeloma, um, non-Hodgkin lymphoma. 
and now we are also treating patients with um, solid tumors such as mesothelioma, triple um, negative breast cancer, and uh, we're gearing towards other um, applications in in the field of solid tumors. Uh, we're also expanding in the field of liquid tumors and hematologic tumors, uh, treating patients with DML, which uh, is one of the uh, uh, forefront right now, also where there is um, large unmet medical need. We have um, a strong um, internal um, group who are working on the design of new chimeric antigen receptors with new um, signaling domains and uh, new combinations that um, are have the goal of overcoming some of the uh, immune um, suppressive environment in solid tumors and trying to overcome all the uh, barriers that solid tumors present, um, which are even more difficult to uh, overcome than the uh, hematological tumors. So we're designing really new um, signaling domains and new combinations with other therapeutic agents. In terms of the allogenic, um, we have um, developed um, T cells der derived from induced prepotent stem cells. And um, we have an internal program that we hope to bring to clinical trials in, in the next year. We also have collaborators um, such as Fate Therapeutics who have initiated clinical trials um, at MSK based on the technology that we have worked on together as well. So we're very excited about uh, the allogenic approaches, which should definitely broaden the access um, if we can get these um, cells to persist uh, long enough and um, do the same type of work as the autologous cells, um, but in a much more practical and uh, manner. Wow, huge body of work going on uh, at Sloan Kettering. And obviously, some solid tumors certainly are kind of the big next phase, we think. You know, obviously, there's I think there's something like 2,500 clinical trials going on around the world um, in cell and gene therapy, many of them focused in trying to solve them, the solid tumor challenge, um, obviously one that would have a huge patient impact. Uh, if we weren't able to get it right. Um, I've got a question, and excuse my ignorance in advance of asking this question, it's probably a dumb question, but um, traditionally the role of academic research or academic medical centers like Sloan Kettering has been to, as you've been saying, develop new modalities, new approaches, um, and also to test others' approaches You know, in partnership with, with uh, clinical trial sponsors. Increasingly, we, we've had... Jason Bach from from MD Anderson on the podcast recently. We talked to John Connolly at Pisces. It seems as though some of these different institutions are thinking about maybe a little bit differently about their role um, and involving it to think about not only about early stage research and development uh, or clinical trials, but even maybe moving towards manufacturing and treating patients uh, themselves. Um, I'm curious about your view on that and, and whether that is actually a trend or I'm I'm grasping at straws and putting two and two together where there really isn't anything. But I'd be curious about kind of where academic research you think plays a role potentially as, uh, AMCs in both research and also manufacturing. 
Yes, uh, I think it's a complex issue with um, um, really um, novel models of um, thinking about care and healthcare mm-hmm. in, in hospitals. Um, traditionally, as, as you said, the um, medical centers are really involved in um, the uh, early stages, uh, phase one uh, discovery and um that has been really um, the major role early on at, at MSK, where we were really treating patients with um, our own homegrown CAR T cells, um, which were uh, designed internally. There was really no other way uh, to get at it, uh, considering that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there was no uh, industry uh, interest and, and there was not the knowledge uh, background that we now have on the feasibility of these approaches. Today, um, we definitely can see that um, um, the medical centers are also taking on clinical trials, which are uh, with products that are developed with companies or biotechs, um, because um, those um, are developing products which address and met medical needs um, in certain diseases and, and they definitely need to be tested and investigated in, in the clinical setting and, and that's a great way to um, be able to bring new um, treatments to replace um, suboptimal um, standard of care. But in terms of medical centers developing their own products and being able to perform multi-center clinical trials. This can, in, um, in my view, get somewhat complicated. I think there will be new structures that need to be put in place. I mean, really undertaking a phase two and beyond clinical trial um, in a medical center uh, for a disease which has a large number of patients would take a lot of resources. So I think, um, and not only in terms of manufacturing, but then you have to think about everything around manufacturing, which has to do with um, a supply chain, um, management of the supply chain, management of uh, the patients, management of um, all the uh, clinical trial um, data. And, And that would require to be centralized or federated between different hospitals, um, it would be, in my view, very difficult to have a single clinical center manufacturing for all the um, um, other centers. So I think probably uh, some um, kind of cooperations and agreements between medical centers with uh, potentially a regi- regional um uh, uh, locations, um, so kind of different poles uh, to cover uh, the country would be necessary because um, quality control will also need to be centralized. And uh, unless you have a completely automated um, manufacturing quality control um, and uh, storage uh, platform, I would say. Uh, not to also mention the um, chain of custody and and the um, storage and uh, cold chain that we need to maintain to distribute these products, which is one of the most complicated 
aspects besides manufacturing. Um, Indeed. Yeah. Vanetti and, and Traxel are, are partners of Orion. You know, they do, they do their job really well. It is complicated, the logistics around today's um, methodology. It is interesting, though, to think about, as you were saying, kind of maybe a centers of excellence model or a hub and spoke model where we're, we've got regional uh, coverage, maybe. I think, you know, the industry generally has agreed that centralized manufacturing, you know, harvesting a patient cells, flying them halfway across the world sometimes, uh, uh, processing them and flying them back probably isn't the, the path to scale. Uh, that's going to work the best. So there's new models that are in need of development. And I know a lot of you and your peers think that the, you know, AMCs have a role to play. I think it's just a question of what, what role and how do we make it work? And as you said, we need automation. We need platforms where we can monitor in real time what's happening, you know, under one quality system and prove to the regulator that it's a safe and, and high quality process. So we're not quite there yet, but hopefully Ori will do a little bit to help us move in that direction if we do our job right. So that's definitely the ambition. Absolutely. We are counting on you and your technology to help <laughs> us with that. Well, it'll take a village for sure, the ecosystem of partners that we're building, because um, there's a lot of expertise required, as you know, to, to handle all the various pieces. But uh, how has the role, in your view, has the role changed at all uh, in the last decade, you know, from what AMCs were doing before, kind of, and what they might need be called upon to do uh, in the next three to five years? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the role has already, I mean, definitely evolved. Um, we have really gone from handling homegrown protocols um, where we developed a technology for manufacturing and local distribution to now we have created at Swan Catering a um, service of cell therapies where there are many physicians who do not necessarily uh, um, are involved in the um, design of uh, conceptions of cell therapies and, and products, but are basically uh, choosing um, to collaborate with a number of companies or, or biotechs who have uh, were proposing a menu of um, different early trials, which, as I mentioned earlier, can uh, fulfill requirements for unmet needs in certain diseases. So definitely there is now uh, um, a menu of um, uh, different protocols that are being undertaken. And, um, and this is definitely creating uh, um, additional work and, and additional um, specialties in the uh, um, medical centers. I mean, the uh, really early on, the only services who were comfortable to distribute uh, these uh, products were really the bone marrow transplant services because they had handled cell manipulations, and uh, even if they were minimal, and uh, they knew how to move these products from one country to another, and and internally, then how to to store them and and infuse them and deliver them to patients. So right now, with other services are also learning how to become comfortable with um, those logistics. Additionally, I think in terms of the uh, multi-center trials, um, there is definitely a need to at the moment, um, there is very little um, mechanisms for medical centers themselves to initiate um, multi-center trials because first you would have to get the manufacturer at different 
different centers to be able to fulfill the requirements of the numbers that of patients that need to be enrolled. And then again, the logistics logistics story around um, organization of collection of data and and and, and tracking of, of products is complicated and still not solved. So um, these multi-center trials are really um, organized and, and supported right now still by pharmaceutical companies or, or biotechs. And we're not yet at the point where a medical center can take the lead on that. Uh, there's also all the liabilities that these centers have to take on if they manufacture a product and, and send it to a different center. And there is no clear path from what I understand in terms of um, getting a commercial a product commercialized initiated by a medical center that needs also to be defined and, and built. Mm-hmm. Thought through. We're seeing a little bit of a trend and I'm not asking you to reveal any secrets uh, here, but we're seeing a little bit of a trend where Industry is partnering with medical centers. Like I think Thermo had a partnership that they announced with UCSF to build a essentially a sidecar facility alongside the research uh, center. Uh, National Resilience has has announced a couple partnerships recently, one with Penn and one with Harvard, different flavors. Um, uh, and then just recently, I think maybe less, this week, I saw that Penn had uh, struck an agreement with the Center for Breakthrough Medicine uh, down in Pennsylvania. Do you see that as a a trend that continues moving forward? Um, you know, obviously you're you're in Manhattan. There's not a ton of space probably at <laughs> where you are to build a, a GMP manufacturing facility. So, um, you know, these kinds of partnerships seem to maybe make sense. But I wanted to get your thought on it. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be really important uh, that these partnerships are built along the line because um, these companies will be able to kind of propose a, a menu of uh, operation units that are essential for um, the manufacturing of these products. And if you have company you can who, who has basically uh, kind of debug the, the, the different operation systems and, and can help these medical centers to bring them together and, and sequence that can be flexible, um, it will be very um, useful and really will accelerate the development of of the uh, products and uh, the implementation of these technologies. Because we find themselves, um, you know, at at these early times to um, really spend a lot of time in trying to determine the compatibilities between systems and between operation units. And if others who have more experience um, in that field and who have the resources can help uh, medical centers to uh, really streamline these um, the construction and building of these operation units in different sequences, um, I think it will be uh, extremely helpful to have their support and, and partnership. I mean, it seems to make sense, you know, it's sort of specializing, you know, specialization, letting the companies do what they do best and letting the researchers do what they do best and bringing those pieces together. Uh, and if you could potentially have a national network, which seems to be, you know, in particular national resilience's ambition, they're buying facilities around the around the country and then maybe even internationally. Uh, I think they have some presence in Canada, you know, if you're able to replicate 
those processes, that digital platform in multiple places, then you can imagine where we could run a multi-center trial potentially on the back of that infrastructure. So it's quite an interesting model to think about and gives that potentially powers that regional center of excellence uh, model if, if, if it does you know, head in that direction. But there's definitely innovation needed at, at, at all phase, <laughs> at all pieces of the, of the value chain uh, to continue. I wanted to ask you a question in, in just from your perspective. Obviously, you run, have run, and, and have been involved in cell and gene therapy manufacturing and the translation of academic processes into clinical, clinical readiness, and then I would assume also helping see them to commercial readiness as well as maybe they go out the door or through, with partners. What is the, you know, I think we hear a lot about cost of goods being high. We hear a lot about highly variable quality shall we say, you know, not being able to necessarily control the quality and, and repeatability of the process that we might like, relatively low throughput, you know, manual processes. What's your view as far as, you know, what are the most significant barriers to treating patients at scale? I think everyone in the industry, you know, we all got into this to to help patients at the end of the day and, and having, it's frustrating for all of us, I'm sure, that we have really clinically effective uh, cell and gene therapies, but you know, not that many patients can benefit from them. So what's your view of the most significant barriers that are holding us back from really enabling widespread access for patients? Yeah. I mean, at, at this point, really, um, we have the, the cost of goods and the cost of operators, manpower, which are the uh, two major expenses. Obviously, the uh, automation should bring us some relief. And also the uh, the monitoring and in, in real time and um, being able to monitor the parameters of the cultures and being able to get some immediate feedback and adjustments of metabolites, uh, cytokines that would uh, maintain this culture in the uh, optimal stages. So right now there is some efforts to develop technologies that allow us to monitor in real time. Um, just even the um, you know cell concentrations and cell numbers, and really being able to sample in real time and and doing the analysis of biomics, uh, metabolomics, to be able to follow the uh, characteristic of the culture and provide feedback um, that will maintain these cultures in optimal stages. And the other would be to be able to, you know, abort a process at the early times if uh, the, the cultures are not behaving as, as they should according to um, specifications that are um, have been determined to be optimal. So I think there is lots of progress. I mean, the Georgia Tech um, University has a program with CMAT to look at different aspects of, of those. And I'm sure there are other programs that are um, working on, on those um, large-scale initiatives and building in this into an automation unit um, from the selection of the cells to um, their transduction expansion and formulation would be really uh, extremely um, useful. Of course, there's still some biology to, to work out <laughs> At this time, I think that even if we have the ability to measure all these parameters in real time, we still have some work to do on the uh, characterization of the uh, therapeutic products in, in the uh, bulk products that we're infusing. But um, I think these need to be uh, 
worked in parallel. It's one of the major topics that, that continues to come up around analytics. I think broadly, it's sort of often put into a bucket of, but you know, how do we better understand these processes in detail so we can link cause and effect and understand the the impact of certain piece of the process and you know where what's inherent variability maybe due to the sort of variability of the patient starting material versus you know the human operator or conditions and you know trying to understand that interplay better it's a little bit of a black box it seems today and we're often operating in paper batch records and you know lab notebooks versus digital systems that might be able to help us with this um, so what i heard you say and that i fully agree with is it's sort of you know we're dealing with academic processes, often you know manual, manual driven, you know people driven processes, which tend to in, increase uh, variability and cost. Um, so if we can wring out some of those things and maybe digitize components of it, you know what's exciting for me is you know if it takes you I don't know seven to ten years to develop a product and try and bring it through the clinical process, you know if we can try and shorten some of that you know tech transfer time and that experimental design time where we can help you identify what's going to be the optimal process more quickly. You know, maybe we could shave a year or two years or who knows off the process. And that would be, you know, getting more products into the clinic, you know, knowing that we would have the ability to get them to patients if uh, if they make it through the clinical process. That for me is a, a huge goal for us is to really work with academic researchers to to design a platform that's flexible enough to do their research work, but also enabling scale ultimately. Because I think... I don't know if you agree with this and I don't want to be controversial necessarily, but I think sometimes the incentive alignment uh, for academic research, you know, obviously you need often need to fund the grants and there's publications and these kinds of things. I'll ask it as a question to say, you know, how, how often or is it common that academic researchers are thinking about manufacturing scale at those kind of early preclinical programs? I'm guessing there's other things they have to worry about at that stage. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, like you say, the um, the gap is really in the funding. Um, we find ourselves uh, to be well funded into the uh, the preclinical research, and generally, the uh, value of death is definitely in the process development and early uh, validation and, and process qual- process qualification and validation runs where it's very difficult to get funding there if you are only operating on academic uh, funding so um and that's that's why we have built actually at Sloan Kettering many uh, different partnerships with industry because we have more latitude in developing processes i think it's um, it's always limited because uh, companies you know want to get their clinical trials out yesterday <laughs> And uh, everybody is uh, always in a rush to get whatever best process you have today with uh, really just incremental improvements. And uh, so I find that it's very difficult in the academic setting to find a good way to to be able to work on on improving and dramatically and a, a clinical process and a clinical manufacturing process. Um, there seem to be um, no entity who is able to devote the time and, and the funds. So I think uh, potentially the networks that you were discussing before may help address also these 
gaps by pre-packaging a, a menu of different options based on the characteristics of the operation units that can be uh, tailored to um, the need of the product of a new process being developed at an academic center. And I hope that will resolve some of those conundrums that we have to deal with, which sometimes kind of find us being pushed in a a place where we know that potentially the manufacturing process is not completely optimized and and we would would want to be able to do um, some optimization that cannot happen because of funding or time or, or both. Yes. It often seems that kind of the things that get fun, attract funding um, are often, you know, the most novel, the most leading edge, the most innovative, and maybe not the some of the blocking and tackling pieces that would help us get these products to to more patients and to commercialization. So, hopefully, as you said, these networks and technologies like Ori can help front run some of that to not make it so hard to do some of that process development. Uh, work. Yeah, and I think also the uh, scalability of the uh, technologies is really important because mm-hmm. we find ourselves, you know, doing a lot of the preclinical work in small units that do not have an equivalent in a large scale. I mean, large scales in, in terms of autologous um, in, in our case, whereas we have done the most work, um, but I think also in the other setting, I mean, so I think in both cases, we're lacking some of the tools to do the uh, process development um, with scalable technology uh, from really the uh, early time uh, of the process of, of the process development to the uh, clinical scale. A question for you, and I, you know, I sort of have made this assertion before on the podcast, and I wonder what your view is to say. You know, I mean, you were around probably, you know, doing work in the field when, you know, Jesse Gelsinger, the sort of initial, some of the initial patient deaths that kind of put a chill on some of the adoption of cell gene therapy potentially for a period of time while you know clinical research continued on. My thought is that if we can't solve this scalability problem, how to bring these products to patients? you know, what make them widely available, make them cost effective, uh, that that could pose an, an existential threat to to the industry, to the modality. You know, it could be seen as, oh, well, this is a an nice science project. This isn't actually, you know, the third pillar of medicine that you and I feel it, it is. Um, so I wonder what your thought is. I mean, it's, it's certainly, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day and, and there's lots of work to do. Um, but ultimately, you know, we're all in this to treat patients and the, the huge amounts of capital that's flowing into cell and gene therapy, you know, I think it was something on the order of 20 billion two years ago, something like 23 to 25 billion last year. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of capital uh, chasing what's, you know, incredibly promising modality. But ultimately, you know, these are for-profit companies that need to deliver an ROI to their investors. And how do we balance those things? How do we, you know, is it an existential threat if we, in your view, if we can't make these products widely available for patients in a cost-effective way. Does that pose a threat to the industry, in your view? I mean, I think definitely if we were not able to um, extend the um, accessibility of the technology to even solid tumors today and um, to more patients, um, that would definitely um, pose a threat. But I'm very confident that uh, we should be able to do that. I mean, right now in the... um, allogenic setting, we definitely um, are seeing some activity of these products in um, liquid tumors. And um, so I think um, there is some 
resolution um, on the horizon uh, for being able to make um, larger batches. I mean, I don't know if uh, these are going to address the needs of every patient for every disease. Um, Most likely not, specifically in the context, I think, of solid tumors. We have, we're dealing with patients who have, uh, for the most part, uh, competent immune systems that will make it more difficult to implement the allogenic uh, therapies there. So, uh, which I think is um, an indication that there might be um, um, a longer term um, life for the uh, providers of uh, autologotherapies in the context of um, solid tumors, because I I think uh, at first we will need to really use the autologous system to develop new um, tools, signaling molecules and uh, combination therapies in um, these solid tumors. But I think that uh, as we learn how to to make these um, products in more automated systems with better monitoring and and digital uh, monitoring and recording and uh, tracking, we should be able to make them affordable. And maybe the models will have to change and the uh, profits on each product may not be what it is on on a pill, but I think that there is no reason that these should not be enabled by uh, an improvement in in the technology. I mean, we have to remember that up to uh, less than a decade ago, there was absolutely no technology that was devoted to these cell therapies per se. I mean, uh, we started to adopt some of the technologies from the stem cell processing lab, which did not have any uh, long-term culture from the antibodies field, which do not have the same requirements. And uh, and slowly we are developing, uh, we're seeing technologies that are being developed specifically for the um, for these cell therapies and for these uh, personalized medicines. So I think we we still need, we still have, some work to do to uh, and some time to to really adapt the technology to these new type of therapies and uh, we need to give ourselves the time if uh, we would have given up on the approach uh, after 10 years we wouldn't be here today and uh, we had to overcome many of uh, the uh, pushbacks that we uh, received from every stakeholder, uh, from the uh, scientists to the clinicians to uh, the engineers. Another one of those over overnight successes that took thirty years, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly, and and to the payers. So um, I think there there will be there should be ways. I mean, there is no uh, doubt that uh, if uh, we can provide. Um, benefit to to patients who have uh, exhausted all standard of cares and and today and if we can also bring up these technologies early time point in the disease where the patients are have less tumor burden and have received um, less courses of immunotherapies um, that we could also probably get results in more patients so uh, that would definitely relieve um, some of the cost of, of the uh, 
treatments that these patients are receiving um, at the moment and which are not optimal. I mean, it stands to reason if we could harvest healthier immune cells earlier in the disease progression and use those uh, as a therapy, that that should, that should be better. It should help. And it seems like some of the data coming out of Kite and others have, have demonstrated that these products would work well at second line therapy or even earlier, which I think is all of our ambition is to get the costs down far enough that we can make them widely accessible much earlier in the treatment pathway. You highlighted a question which I wasn't going to ask you, but I would love to know your opinion on, which is this kind of this aloe versus auto debate. And, you know, is it once we figure out aloe, then it's all aloe for forever? Or is there some other mix that you might see where the two coexist? I'd be curious in your view of the future. Um, what, what happens? Is, is, is there a peaceful coexistence? You know, some immune cells for some indications might work better in an auto format and others in an aloe. What, what's your thought? Yeah, I mean, I think in um, the hematological um, diseases where um, a lot of the patients are actually are immunosuppressed, uh, the allogenic um, products are more likely to work because um, they won't be rejected as fast as they would be rejected in a patient who is immunocompetent. And we know that having to provide immunosuppression to patients who receive these allo products is kind of a conundrum because you want to boost the immune system to <laughs> get an anti-tumor effect, but you need to bring down the immune system in order to get these cells to engraft. So, so obviously, I'm sure we will over time improve the uh, allogenic products, and uh, this is a very active field of research. But as I mentioned, um, in the context of solid tumors, um, the um, immune system of those patients uh, can be um, quite functional. And um, therefore, I think that uh, the autologous products and the proof of concept and, and what type of combination of uh, receptors, um, CARS co-receptors, will um, be efficient in eradicating these tumors and how to penetrate um, and overcome the um, suppressive microenvironment of these tumors will probably require, in my view, that we find tools that work with autologous uh, cells before because we will have, in the meantime, to solve the problem of the rejections of the yellow genetic products. So, so I think there's still time to develop technologies for autologous products and also, you know, probably um, potentially rare diseases um, where we won't need as, as much product and where we will not have thousands of patients in, in need. Um, the, uh, the autologous setting, it's, it's still probably uh, will, will remain relevant. I think that um, one of the current um, thoughts also, which I know is very much pushed by uh, the uh, investors and uh, is the uh, development of in vivo um, gene therapy. And you know, there is, there has been work done over the years uh, to uh, really unravel the potential of these approaches. Um, I think that um, it's definitely uh, a goal that uh, should be there because that's likely to be the place where we can decrease the cost of goods the most. However, I think the targeting is will remain 
a challenge for many years that we will need to do a lot more research um, uh, on these grounds to be able to target the delivery of these lipid nanoparticles or nanoparticles of any uh, sort, shape and flavors um, <laughs> in order to uh, not flood the the, uh, the body with off-target expression of, of those materials that um, will uh, improve the uh, immune and performance of the body. So um, I think that uh, this is something that should be worked on and will be and is being worked on. And that may also help us in even our ex vivo approaches in terms of genetically modifying cells in a more efficient way. So there might be also um, benefits for our um, ex vivo approaches. Great. No, that's uh, an ambition we can, it's great to close on that, you know, what I heard you say was, you know, it's not either allogeneic or autologous for the near future. It's probably both, uh, both and rather than either or. And an in vivo ambition would be, I think, great, absolutely great for patients as well. And it's going to be a journey to get there. But I, I agree with you. We've got plenty of runway to, I mean, as when I asked Bruce this question, he said, well, right now we've got proven autologous therapies. They've proven themselves in the clinic. They're clin clinically efficacious. Uh, we just need to make them <laughs> make them better, more available, uh, and then we'll work on all the other challenges in parallel. So, um, well, thank you so much for the uh, at the top of the hour. Greatly appreciate you joining me. Thank you very much. It's been great to see you, and look forward to having you as uh, as a member of our scientific advisory board. And we'll continue to stay in touch uh, on the development of the Ori platform. Thank you for listening to the Ori Spotlight podcast. Keep up with the latest in cell and gene therapy and to follow us on our mission to manufacture brighter futures for patients. Head to the show notes to follow us on social media or visit oribiotech.com.